Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We've been working our way through this letter. Find ourselves in Ephesians 5. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 21 this morning, an extremely important section of this letter and scripture. Let's begin by reading together verses 18 through 21. Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, and singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Those who have been with us for a while know that I can be notorious for extremely long introductions and really short points or shorter points. So this morning what I would like to do is switch that up a bit and give you an extremely short introduction because I have two really long points. Introductions are typically just about creating interest and uh, putting before the listeners the need. Why is it that I need this text? Uh, Why should I pay attention? So let me create interest by saying this. We are going to skip the introduction because this is so important. And so there you go. We're skipping it all together because there is so much to say about what verse 18 means. Now, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit, that command has certainly been misunderstood by many. And so what I want to do is give you this morning two keys to understanding this command by just looking at the text surrounding the command as well as the command itself so that you are able to walk in a way that pleases the Spirit. And so I have just two keys, two points, and the first is this. We're going to look at the context behind the command. What is the context behind this command, be filled with the Spirit? Proper Bible interpretation cannot be done without properly understanding the context. And so, as this verse has been frequently misinterpreted because it has been frequently ripped out of its context, what we're going to do is take the time to firmly place it within the context so that we are better able to understand what Paul is actually saying. And so, I have for you some observations regarding what is around this text, five insights that you can just draw from the context itself about this command. The first insight is this. If we look at the immediate context, we learn that everything going on here is really being driven by one command found at the beginning of verse 15, and that command is this, look carefully then how you walk. That command is further explained by four statements that follow it. What does it mean to be careful? Walk carefully? Well, don't be unwise, but be wise. What does it mean to be careful? To walk carefully, redeem the time because the days are evil. Also, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then one more from our current passage, 
Walking carefully means do not be drunk with wine. That is dissipation. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. From the immediate context, we learn that if you want to be wise, be filled with the Spirit. If you want to redeem the time, be filled with the Spirit. If you want to truly understand God's will, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, to walk carefully is to be filled with God's Spirit. On the flip side, if you look at the prohibition, to walk carelessly, unwisely, to waste your time, to be ignorant of the Lord's will, maybe no better example of that than drunkenness. To walk under the influence of something other than the Spirit. All of this we gain just from the immediate context of the command. Secondly, though, if we zoom out a bit and we look at the overall context of Ephesians chapter 5, what you will see are two major themes, two key themes, and those themes are light and darkness. Ephesians 5 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them, that is, by living in the light. So when we come to Ephesians 5.18, we know that drunkenness is the equivalent of walking in darkness and being filled with the Spirit is the equivalent of walking in the light. As darkness is in complete opposition to the light, So drunkenness is absolutely contradictory, antithetical to being filled with the Spirit. This from the larger context of Ephesians chapter 5. But now, thirdly, if we zoom out again, even further, we're going to learn something else. In the overall context of chapter 4 and 5, you remember chapter 4 began our application Paul has been laying before the Ephesians what it means to walk worthy of the call to which they had been called. And the way he is doing this is through a list of prohibitions and a list of commands. Ephesians 4.25, put away falsehood. No more lies. Instead, speak the truth with your neighbor. 4.26, be angry, don't sin. 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, work hard with your hands. Share with one another. 429, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only what is good for building up. 431, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love. Instead, flee sexual immorality. Ephesians 5.4, let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. These are out of place instead thanksgiving and now ephesians 5 18 really the last of these do not be drunk with wine that's the prohibition instead be filled with the spirit why is this important the reason is because it gets rid of the idea that a christian could somehow be filled with the spirit and not walk in accordance with the spirit's commands. These two ideas are intimately connected. You may go to some emotionally charged worship service, 
with lights and fog, and you're not going to have that here. But you may go there, and something may happen. You may begin to think, I'm being filled with the Spirit. But if you are not walking in accordance with what the Spirit has commanded, then you are not filled with the Spirit. Spirit-filled is always connected, intimately connected to walking in accordance with His command, or else it is not Spirit-filled, period. This being the case, it is not a surprise that within the context of all of these prohibitions and commands, we find this statement about the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, and grieve not, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What is it to grieve the Holy Spirit? To walk contrary to what He has commanded to not do what he has commanded. It is to continue in unrepentant sin. He is grieved by this. What is it to please him? To walk in continual obedience, to be conformed to what the word says, conformed to Christ. All of this to say what is obvious, and that is being spirit-filled goes hand in hand with walking in obedience. This is to walk worthy of the call to which you have been called. Three observations from the immediate context, a little bit larger context, and even larger context. Two more observations. Fourth, the fact that Paul contrasts being drunk with wine with the idea of being filled with the Spirit ought to banish the ridiculous idea that being filled with the Spirit will produce in a person a kind of drunken-like state. He uses this as a contrast for a reason. A kind of state where a person no longer has control of their words or their body. A group of people who claims to be drunk on the Spirit, who is laughing uncontrollably, rolling around on the floor, saying things they don't even know what they're saying. They're absolutely not full of the Spirit. Maybe full of something but not full of the Spirit. The Spirit does not mimic worldly behaviors. He doesn't mimic darkness or foolishness. Paul has already made this clear. Ephesians 4.17, Now I say in testifying the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. A drunkenness describes a Gentile-like behavior. We don't walk like that. Ephesians 4.20, this is not the way you learned Christ. You see a group of people doing that, and they're claiming that they're spirit-filled. They did not learn that from Christ. Drunkenness is associated with all kinds of futility. It leads to dissipation. Sexual immorality, all forms of evil debauchery. It is an activity of the darkness, one so dark that even if the lights are turned on, still you stumble. Paul, even in other places, associates drunkenness with darkness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then, Paul writes, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, we are light, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Or Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone. We've left that behind. The day is at hand. Christ has shone upon us. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What does this look like? Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, in drunkenness, not in sexual morality, sensuality, quarreling, or jealousy. Drunkenness is clearly an unacceptable activity for the believer. Within the context, you would say this, it is shameful. What does he say in Ephesians 5.11? For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret in the darkness. Spirit-filled has nothing to do with a drunken light state. Not filled with alcohol, filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and the Pentecostals say, and a loss of self-control. Self-control. Do not be drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, which is opposite of drunkenness. One more observation, finally, we cannot forget that one of Paul's main concerns, maybe you have thought that I have forgotten this, is unity. It's unity. More specifically, the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body, a group of believers together, one body and one Spirit. So when we come to Ephesians 5.18, we know that being filled with the Spirit includes the idea, the concept, the reality of the unity of the Spirit. This being the case, we're not surprised to find that the fruits of the Spirit, which are mentioned here in the verses following verse 18, are all activities that we do with one another. Ephesians 5.19 Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is quite the scene. You can think of it in one of two ways. First, you could think of this scene as a picture of true Christian unity. If there ever was one, this is unity. If you're amongst a group of believers and these are the kinds of activities that are taking place, if everyone is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, if everyone is making a melody to the Lord from their heart, if that group of people are characterized by thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, regardless of the circumstance in everything, if they are all submitting to one another out of reverence, To Jesus Christ, guess what? That group is unified. And they're unified because they are filled with the Spirit. This is a picture, yes, of true Christian unity, but also this picture of unity is a picture of true Spirit filling. You cannot have a church full of the Holy Spirit if that church is not unified by the Spirit. 
You cannot pretend to be Spirit-filled and then go and violate the unity of the Spirit with proud or harsh or impatient, unloving conduct. So then, Paul writes in Galatians 5.25, after giving the fruits of the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, and by the name Christian you are claiming to do so, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. What does this look like? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. No, 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 that's not Spirit-filled. Spirit-filled is loving one another, preferring one another giving thanks to the Lord together. This, put all together, is the context. As you consider the context, you already know largely what Paul is after when he says spirit-filled. And what does it mean to be spirit-filled? It is to walk together in unity. What does it mean to be spirit-filled? It is to walk in the light, not the darkness. It is to walk carefully in accordance with God's word, with God's people. It is to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit-filled life, just simply according to the context. And so this context sets the stage upon which Paul will now give one of the most important commands for the church. All of this so that we can actually understand what it is he is commanding. So the second key to understanding this command is to actually understand what it means by looking at it. So secondly, the meaning of the command. The meaning. 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. This is debauchery, excess, but be filled with the Spirit. If you look just at that command, be filled, then there's something behind it that you don't see in English. That Greek verb is a present, imperative, passive, plural verb. And when I said that in the first service, everybody went to sleep. So let me say it again, all right? It is a present, imperative, passive, plural verb. A lot packed into that that you don't see in English. A few things to note. First, the command, which appears in the present, is a present imperative, a present command, which means or indicates a continual activity. This is not a one-time event, as if you speak gibberish and all of a sudden you're filled with the Spirit. This is a continual activity. So the idea that Paul is after is be continuously filled with the Spirit. Always be filled. That's the idea behind the command. Secondly, this verb, you may have noticed, is in the passive. This is not a mistranslation. This is because this is what the verb is. It is not fill. It is not fill yourself up with. That's not the meaning. It's not something you do. Rather, it is something that is done to you by God. It's not follow this formula, begin to speak these words. No, no, no. It's be filled with the Spirit. Passive. Third, this command is in the second person plural, which of course emphasizes the corporate aspect of the command. To the Texans, Paul would say, y'all be filled with the Spirit. All of you. Not just one or two, but the entire church is the idea 
The focus of this command is on the entire church. John Stott writes, The Spirit does not fill us to act as isolated individuals, but as members together of a well-ordered, worshiping community. This is the body of Christ. In other words, the saints, all of them, have an obligation to continuously receive the influence of the Spirit. Ephesians 2.22, Paul's already written about this, "...in Him that is in Christ." You, the church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, another verse we often think of from an individualistic perspective, talking about this idea. Paul writes, or do you, that's plural, do y'all not know that your body, this is the church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. All of us together, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, in the church together. He is saying, church, you are the temple of God. God's presence resides here. So then all of you together glorify God. Be filled with the Spirit. This is a corporate issue. Corporate issue. I'll give you an example of that. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. A few years ago in the Brian's ministry, we were walking through the book of 1 Kings. And one chapter that stood out to me was 1 Kings chapter 8. This chapter records the moment when the Ark of the Covenant comes to rest in the temple, the temple that Solomon had just built. This is a moment that had been hundreds of years in the making, and here it is coming together. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. We'll read this. We'll jump around just a little bit. Starting verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord. So everyone is gathered together to see this glorious moment. Verse 5, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, God's house, in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. There was, verse 9, nothing in the Ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came... Out of the holy place, the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I love that. Someone came up to me after. He was a seminary professor. And he said, I used to teach that, and this is the phrase I would use. 
This is God's presence with God's people. What is it to be spirit-filled in the church? God's presence with God's people. And so as we turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, I imagine Paul must have had this in his mind. What is he saying to the church here? He's saying the church ought to be full of God's presence. It is God's presence with God's people. As God's people gather, whether it's in this building, some other building, or no building, God's presence is there with His people. That's what it is to be Spirit-filled. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, there was no debate on that day as whether or not God was there. He was there. His glory filled the place such that the priests couldn't stand to minister in there. He was there in all of His power and glory and majesty. And so it should be in God's church, amongst God's people, that when someone walks through these doors, they should have an understanding that God's presence is there with His people. Many churches out there, and you could walk through the door and you'll get a sense that maybe they're full of something. They're full of entertainment. They're full of seeker-friendly gimmicks, greed, man-made traditions. Maybe you will find the newest fad, leadership philosophy, whatever that may be, worldly philosophy. But there are very few churches that when you walk through there, you're hit with the glory and the power of God's presence. And you understand, whatever's going on here is not about these people, but God is here with these people. Because that's what church is, being filled with the Spirit equals God's presence with His people. The body of believers are continually filled with the Spirit. So from the verb, the plural, we learn that the corporate body together is to be continuously filled in this way. As we continue on just in the verse, a couple more things to note. First, again, going back to this idea of drunkenness, which seems kind of out of place here, he's using it Because it lets us know that just as drunkenness implies a kind of mind-altering, behavior-changing influence, which from a worldly perspective produces joy, so also being filled with the Spirit implies behavior-changing, mind-altering kind of influence. We have the mind of Christ that produces a real kind of joy. Charles Hodge comments, just as men are said to be filled with wine when they are completely under its influence, so also they are said to be filled with the Spirit when He, the Spirit, controls all of their thoughts, all of their feelings, emotions, words, and actions under the influence of the Holy Spirit. From this contrast, then, we learn not only what not to do, but also He uses it to further explain what it is to be Spirit-filled. Further, as we continue on, you could say this, just as drunkenness is associated with certain negative behaviors, sexual immorality, debauchery, orgies, all things like this, no end to the foolishness, so also the church filled with the Spirit 
where each believer is continuously filled by the Spirit of God, there's an association with particular behaviors. Each person in the church different, gifted differently. Each church around the world is different, and yet, as you walk through those doors, there will be big-time similarities. And what are those? Well, here Paul gives some descriptions in participles. He begins, do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, be filled with the Spirit. And here's the first one, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, being Spirit-filled, this is what it produces, Bible-saturated fellowship. The parallel passage in Colossians makes this even more clear. Colossians 3.16, Paul had written these things uh, largely at the same time from prison. Colossians 3.16, he says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual psalms, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Lots of parallels there. What is he doing? If you take these two passages, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, what you notice is that Paul has substituted being filled with the Spirit with let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, these things are in some sense interchangeable. When the Ark of the Covenant came to rest in the temple, there was one item in it, the Ten Commandments, God's Word. And when God's presence comes to rest amongst His people, when a believer is filled with the Spirit, one thing in there, God's Word. And because God's Word is in the heart of that believer, because Christ's Word is dwelling richly in them, what comes out is heart-filled worship. Naturally, we see in Ephesians 5.19 as he continues, be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is unique to the church. When Republicans get together, they do not sing. Democrats don't sing. Golf clubs don't sing, but churches sing. And the reason we sing is because, hopefully, you want to. <laughs> Making melody in your heart to the Lord. And what's in the heart, Jesus says, comes out. Heart-filled worship. Worship isn't adhering to certain traditions, going through the motions. It's heart-filled worship. In fact, even in Psalm 118, I noticed this in reading Psalm 118.15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. This has always been the case. Largest book in the Bible, Psalms. We have songs to sing. So those who are filled with the Spirit, sing. Another thing we could gather here, a third thing, being Spirit-filled means being full of thanksgiving. You might call it this, God-trusting thanksgiving. Be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, either when you walk into a group and you see this kind of thanksgiving, you know that group of people, they're crazy, or they have a hope that is well beyond anything I know. 
How could you give thanksgiving to that or for that and everything? I mean, the world is characterized by complaints. The church is characterized by thanksgiving in everything. And that is because we know for those who love God, He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Thanksgiving. When you walk into a church, you find a group of people who are characterized by this, regardless of the situation, you know God has done that, filled with the Spirit. And then one more, one more participle. Being filled with the Spirit produces submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which doesn't cancel out, as some people would say, what he's going to say in the next verse, wives submit to your husband, but rather it is further explained by what Paul is going to say in the verses that follow. So, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ means wives submit to your husbands. Means husbands submit to Christ. Means children submit to your parents. Means slaves submit to your masters. If there is someone who has a problem with authority, cannot submit to authority, the authorities God has placed in their life, know this, They are not full of the Spirit. Most likely, they are full of themselves, and therefore, they cannot submit to the desires of those God has placed over them. Or even, as the verse says, to Christ. Submission to the Spirit is submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Four participles to describe the result of the Spirit-filled life. What does it look like? Bible-saturated worship, heart-filled worship, God-trusting thanksgiving, Christ-honoring submission. This is what it looks like. One more observation, though, that the text has for us. If you look at each one of these participles, you will know that there's a similar theme in each one of these. Make a melody with your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The unifying factor behind all of these is Jesus Christ. And the reason is because the Spirit loves to magnify Christ. How do you know? If a believer, a church is spirit-filled, they love and long to magnify Christ. John 16, 12, Jesus said to the disciples, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak from Himself But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. This is what the Spirit does through songs, through conversations, through thanksgiving, even through submission. 
he will glorify me. One chapter earlier, Jesus said in John 15, 26, when the advocate, that's the spirit, literally translated the helper, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what will he do? He will bear witness about me. And verse 27, and you will bear witness also. Why? Because you're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness about Christ as the Spirit fills the church. Guess what? The church testifies of Christ. Contrary to what many churches believe, the Spirit-filled Christian is not someone who constantly goes around speaking about the Spirit. He does speak about the Spirit, but this is not the constant theme. And that is because the Spirit has one constant theme, and that is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Messiah. And so when we gather together to sing, we don't sing and call on the Spirit to come down. Come down, come down, fill us, Holy Spirit. Holy fire, come down. One more time, come down, come down. No, we sing of Christ, and then we know He's down. (laughs) This is the reality. We don't sing those songs because the Spirit doesn't sing those songs. We honor Christ. We point where He is pointing. This is what most honors the Spirit. This being the case, in order to honor the Spirit, we end by pointing to Jesus Christ. And He has one call. For those who do not know the Son, He calls you to come. Why should you come? Because apart from Him, you are sold as a slave to your sin. Why should you come? Because apart from Him, you have no righteousness that would allow you to stand before the Father. Why should you come? Because apart from Him, judgment rests upon you. And yet, if you are not in Christ, you don't see any of this. You don't see yourself as a slave to sin, as needing Christ's righteousness, You know nothing of God's judgment residing on you, maybe intellectually. You don't sense it. It is not a real reality to you. You don't see these things. You're blind in the darkness, ignorant, without knowledge, without hope. Who can reveal it to you? I can't. Your neighbor can't. Your parents can't. You can't read enough books to have it revealed to you. Only the Spirit can reveal it to you. And this is why He has come. John 16, 8. And He, when He comes, the Spirit, will convict the world, unbelievers concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, why? Because they don't see it. Righteousness, they don't see their need for it. Judgment, they have no idea that God's judgment rests upon them. So when the Spirit comes, you want to know what that looks like in an unbeliever's life? Suddenly, they know they are sold as a slave to sin. They have no righteousness apart from Christ. They can't earn their salvation, and God's judgment resides upon them, which leads them to cry out for the one point of salvation God has provided through the Son, Jesus Christ. Last chapter of the Bible. 
Spirit says it all throughout the Bible. Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride. You remember when He comes, He will bear witness about me and also you will too, the church. What do they say? Come. To who? To Christ. Let the one who hears these words come. Let those who are thirsty, whom the Spirit has opened their eyes to see, come. One who desires take water of life without price because it's free. Children in the room that have not come to Christ, the Spirit says, come. Young singles in the room who have not come to Christ, the Spirit says, come. Any single in the room who has not come to Christ, the Spirit says, come. Husbands and wives who have not come to Christ, the Spirit is calling out for you to come. Those who are wiser, the Spirit says, come. Constantly, come to Jesus Christ because without Christ, you have no hope. Ephesians 5.14 Awake. O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And not only that, but the Spirit will come and fill you so that you begin to act like Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit-filled church that the Apostle Paul was after. And so we end by going back to his prayer. He's already prayed for it. We'll close with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, the church in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, God's presence with God's people. What's the result? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that's the Spirit, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your word, which so clearly sets out what you desire. We do ask that you would fill this church with your spirit continuously. This would be a place full of thanksgiving, Bible-saturated singing, that we would submit to one another out of reverence for your Son. Father, that we would proclaim Christ both inside of these walls and outside of these walls, that the Word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Strengthen us to do what you've called us to, that we might walk worthy of the call to which we have been called. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.
Amen. Well, would you please stand?